First, I'd like to thank Pastor Andy and the other elders who asked me to preach. It's always a privilege, and I don't want to take it lightly. I also want to remind you that maybe uh, nine years ago, Pastor Andy preached the same passage. So if you keep hitting the back button on your podcast player long enough, you'll get back to about 2013. I think it was around this time of year, too, that he preached on the same passage. So if you would like to hear maybe, hopefully, uh, the same points and the same faithful presentation of the gospel through this text in a different way, then you can listen to him do so as well. When I was in high school, I was on the tennis team. And finally, when I was a junior, I and the rest of the team were in the finals, the state finals. And I was playing first doubles. So there were my partner and I, and we were about to play one of the matches that if we won, that would mean that we had won the state championship. The whole team had won the state championship. As the the game progressed, sure enough, we were in the lead, and eventually, probably my partner scored the winning point, and I screamed. And if you know me very well, you know that uh, I don't scream. And it surprised even me, and that's why I still remember it. Uh, I was overjoyed and celebrating already, and I kept celebrating along with my teammates. And today we're going to look at the end of Luke chapter 7, where there's a much greater victory and a much greater celebration, and we'll see how we should live in a similar way. But first, let's introduce the Gospel of Luke. Uh, When I preach only one week, it's hard to get all the context and all that's going on into enough space so that you are seeing the same things that I have been studying now for a month or more. Luke was a gospel writer who was very concerned with the clarity of his gospel, that he would accurately present what Jesus had done and who he was so that those reading his gospel would be able to build their faith solidly upon his work. In what we call Luke chapter 7, we have four examples of who Jesus was and what he did. He was the God-man and is the God-man. And what he did, he exercised authority and compassion to deliver his people, both in this life and in the life to come. Whether it's the authority of Jesus to command the healing of the servant that the centurion had faith in, 
or whether it's the authority to raise from the dead a man who had died when Jesus was moved with compassion for his widowed mother, or if it's the authority to do miracles and confirm and encourage the faith of John the Baptist, or whether it's to forgive the sins of the woman in our passage today. Jesus showed he was more than one who was put in authority, more than a prophet, and more even than the Messiah. Jesus was and is the God-man, and he showed that he has the authority over sickness, death, sin, and hell. In this last section of chapter 7, one question remains from the chapter after proving his authority over health and life and all of Israel. What authority does he have over the next life? You see, Jesus brought the centurion servant back to full health. He gave the son of the widow back his life, and he confirmed to John the Baptist that yes, he was the Messiah by proving it with his many miracles. But the question remained, what about sin and death? Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. I'll be reading verses 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering him, said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender who had two debtors, one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When he could not pay, he canceled. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, 
are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Now those who were at the table began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The big idea I hope to draw out of this text is that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So come to him and live in forgiveness eternally. Quickly, I'd like to tell you why I included the word eternally at the end of the title. Yes, it is because Jesus forgives and we enter into eternal life. But I also wanted to take a moment to remind you that there is a sense that we're still asking the question that's here at the end of chapter 7. The question, what about sin and death? We should constantly be preparing for death. We want to prepare to die well. And to die well, we need to live in forgiveness. Simon invited Jesus to his house to recline at his table and eat. From the description, it was probably a dinner party that was held after the Sabbath service. One of the notable men of high standing would invite the visiting rabbi over to his house to eat. Customarily, it was an open-air meal, and outsiders could come and gather around the outside to listen in to the discussion. This was better than the newspaper. You could be right there witnessing it real time. Simon focuses his attention on one of these uninvited guests. In response to Simon, Jesus too focuses on the woman. To Simon, she was a woman of the city, a sinner. To Jesus, she was a living, she was living a forgiven life, filled with the worship of God. And just as Jesus called Simon to look at the women, look at the woman, we should look at her also. She shows us the answer to the question, what about sin and death? In the end, I hope you'll find the answer with me that I summarized in our big idea, which is Jesus has authority to forgive sins. So come to him and live in forgiveness eternally. Once more, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. So come to him and live in forgiveness eternally. As I walk through the rest of this passage, I'm going to draw out three ways to live a loving, forgiven life. One, know your own sinfulness. Two, worship. And three, receive assurance of your forgiveness from Jesus. First, 
to live a loving, forgiven life, know your own sinfulness. In the end, God calls us to be perfect and not to fail in any action or thought or even motivation of our mind. Jesus says it in Matthew 5:48, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." Any sin, any time we don't obey or worship or seek God's glory with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, we sin. Each time puts us in debt to God because of his perfect holiness, a debt we cannot pay. Jesus told a parable to defend the woman and try to show Simon his own need. As Jesus often does, he split the parable in two. One debtor owes the money lender 500 denarii. The other owes only 10% of that. It appears that the money lender has called both of their loans because they must pay back the loan in full and immediately. But neither debtor has enough money. Instead of taking all they have and throwing them and maybe their family into debtor's prison, the money lender fully pardons both of them. Who would love him more? In our day, the first debtor would owe about a year and a half salary before taxes. 10% of that would mean that the other debtor owed him just under two months salary. Imagine that this happened to you. The bank calls the loan on your house or maybe your car. It would mean that you'd have to pay the outstanding debt right away. Few can do that. And that was the case with both of these debtors. What could the money lender do? Everything else they owned could be sold to try to pay their debt. There was no bankruptcy protection then. There was no private mortgage insurance. These two were in danger of losing everything and possibly of going to prison. Who would love the money lender more for canceling their entire debt? Simon the Pharisee that Jesus is telling the parable to did not see his own sin. He thought he was doing well. He was a Pharisee. He looked at God's law and at his own outward actions and saw no difference. He didn't see his need for Jesus to forgive him. His blindness to his need for forgiveness came out in his treatment to Jesus. Simon showed no hospitality toward Jesus. He did not wash his feet. He did not welcome him with a kiss. He did not anoint his head with oil. In the first century, any of these might be expected by someone who wanted to welcome and honor a guest entering their home. Simon was the second debtor. He did not understand the depth of his sin, even if it was less than that of the woman. And he didn't understand that he couldn't pay for it no matter how much or how little it was. 
In stark contrast, the woman saw her sin clearly. She saw her need for Jesus and his perfect deliverance from any and all sin that she had committed, no matter how bad that sin was. And it drove her to a loving, forgiving, forgiven life because she knew what she had been rescued from. And therefore, the, women, the woman thoroughly welcomed Jesus, showing that she was forgiven. We might even say that by washing his feet, kissing him, and anointing him with the ointment, she was welcoming and honoring Jesus into her life as her Lord and Savior. She knew how much she owed Jesus for her forgiveness because she knew the incredible amount of debt that she was in from her sin. So to live a loving, forgiven life, we too need to know our sins, to know what we have been forgiven for. Look at the holiness of God. Look at His law and see how short we fall before it. Look at the perfect life of Christ and see how unworthy we are of his sacrifice. The seriousness of our sin is why Jesus had to go to such great lengths to forgive us, giving his entire life of obedience to us and taking on himself all our punishment for our sins. When you ask for forgiveness from your sins, do you hold in your mind the sinfulness of that sin and the weight of the debt that is being forgiven? We should. It would give us more motivation, more understanding of just how much God has done for us and just what lengths we should go to to praise and worship Him. This does not mean that we should obsess over our sins. But more than that, it means that we should not ignore our sins or refuse to think about them as we ask for forgiveness. When we sin, we should repent and again trust in God. We should also reflect as David did in Psalm 51, saying, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David did not forget the evil of his sin, and it drove him to live a loving, forgiven life, saying later in the same psalm, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David knew his sin and knew that forgiveness for sin would equip him for more joyful service to God, a loving, forgiven life. Second, to live a loving, forgiven life, worship. 
Remember that this was probably a dinner party after the Sabbath service held in the open air to allow onlookers to listen to the conversations. But they would never approach those participating in the meal. And this woman not only attends, but approaches and even worships. She approaches Jesus, the guest of honor. Even more than all this, it would have been a great scandal for her to let down her hair. Yet she does just that to help her wash Jesus' feet. Then she gave him the service of pouring ointment on his feet. Maybe the most memorable quote from this passage is in verse 47, when Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. If we're not careful, we might think that she had to do these acts of love to Jesus in order to be forgiven, but that wouldn't match up with the parable Jesus just told and that he refers to again in the next sentence. The debtors in the parable were completely forgiven of the debt first, and then Jesus asked about how much they would love him. That word for in the phrase, for she loved much, does not have to mean because. It can also be used to introduce evidence. An example that we might be familiar with is the train went by the church for the stage shook. The stage shaking was the evidence that the train had just passed by. This is the same thing that Jesus is drawing our attention to. The evidence of the woman's forgiveness was her great love. We can do the same as we worship Jesus. Worship no matter what the consequences. And worship by serving Jesus. He is the only one who can forgive sins. He obeyed even to death, even death on a cross, to take our punishment and give us his good works. The great double imputation. We should be willing to worship him for that forgiveness, no matter the consequences. Where we are or what others might think of us or say about us, in our culture, there are many who mock us and taunt us and seek to remove us from public discourse. In all of these, we must be even more willing to worship Jesus for his precious blood-bought forgiveness. We should worship by serving Jesus. Since he is no longer present with us on earth, we follow his commandments to live sacrificial lives, giving what is precious to us in order to serve him and show forth his worthiness. We can love him sacrificially in response to his complete forgiveness. Our time is precious to us. Our family is precious to us. Our money, maybe sports 
or crafts or hobbies or games might be precious to us? How are we making each and every aspect of our lives into instruments to worship God? Use your time to serve your neighbor's needs. Teach your family about God, that the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. Give your money to further the work of others in their kingdom work for God. Make it known on the sports field and in your crafts and in what you make with your hands that you serve Jesus, the forgiver of sins. Third, to live a loving, forgiven life, receive assurance from your forgiveness, for your, of your forgiveness from Jesus. One more time. Third, to live a loving, forgiven life, receive assurance of your forgiveness from Jesus. The woman had already been forgiven. That was Jesus' point in the parable. Her acts of love showed that she had been forgiven. But now Jesus affirms her forgiveness. He gives her the gift of assurance, the gift of hearing the pronouncement of forgiveness upon her life, the guarantee of peace with God through Jesus Christ. Those gathered around the table with Jesus are amazed and astonished at his words. Who is this who even forgives sins? In response, Jesus shows again that he is more than a prophet by reading their hearts and then not only giving her assurance of forgiveness, but also assurance of eternal life and peace with God. We can know the same assurance of forgiveness that the woman received. One way we can know is by our baptism and membership in a local church. Knowing that the entire church affirms that your life is like the woman of Luke 7. It gives evidence of your forgiveness by the great love you show for Jesus. There are also many passages in the Bible that assure us of the forgiveness believers have through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Each week, we are reminded of one of these passages following our prayer of confession and thanksgiving. Just this week, we started a new one, 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. We read these verses to each other each week to remind and confirm every member of the church that God forgave us through Jesus Christ and that we are forgiven by His blood. We repeat the same passage for three months so, now would be a great time to begin memorizing 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10, to live a more loving, forgiven life. Another way to receive assurance of forgiveness is to participate in the Lord's Supper. In our church, we don't require that you be a member of the church. We do ask that you have been baptized and that your church affirms your salvation. And we ask that you be in good standing with others, having no animosity or sin separating you from another. Paul told us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
In other words, we proclaim him as the only forgiver of sins and look forward to his return. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for giving us such good words from your Son that we might see the evidence acted out in another's life that despite all our debt, all our sin, that there is forgiveness, that there is an answer to the question of sin and death. Your Son has conquered. He has made a way that we might be forgiven. And now we pray that you would make our lives into lives of worship, remembering what you have forgiven us of, worshiping your Son Jesus, and being assured of our forgiveness by our brothers and sisters in Christ and by your word and in many other ways that your spirit ministers to us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.